deeply connected and related with our theme. Before we read our scripture here today, just in some of our leadership conversations, we have been reflecting from time to time how June mentioned on uh, Saturday morning that uh, you know we live in a culture that in a variety of ways is very confused. I live in Britain now, I speak in understatement. What's more heartbreaking is when confusion comes into the church. Yeah. Um, our churches should be confusion-free zones, but sometimes they're not. Now, most of us have been around the mountain a few times, and so how many of you would, as you reflect over your Christian journey, acknowledge that doing local church can be tricky? <laughs> Anybody relate to that? Um, the only ones who wouldn't are probably under 10 years old. <laughs> but if you look at the ministry of Jesus, there are some big macro things he did to establish God's purposes. Central to that is the atonement, his life, death, burial, and resurrection in purchasing us and bringing us to God. But in a ministry dimension, he made disciples, but his strategy for changing planting earth was planting communities called local churches. And Jesus said, I will build my church. And June described and trusted this deal to guys that previously... I wouldn't have entrusted the deal to. <laughs> and yet now this has been entrusted to us. At least those guys walked with Jesus for three years. I mean, look around the room. <laughs> in the natural, we're in trouble. But this idea of getting church right is challenging for me because this is what I do. I plant churches and we have to wrestle with this. And I've called this talk Partners in Power because in Acts chapter 2, immediately after the description of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the very next thing that we see is not world evangelism. The first thing that Dr. Luke takes us into a detailed study of is the only church that Jesus personally planted. It's the church in Jerusalem. Now, I would venture a guess that if Jesus is planting a church, he probably got it right. There are some things in this church in Jerusalem, some things that they did that are reflective of Jesus' intentions. I mean, he was crystal clear. 
Teach them all that I've commanded you. After meeting a resurrected Lord, after receiving the Holy Spirit, these guys were under marching orders. I guarantee you they got church right the way that Jesus wanted it. And so this morning we're going to look at eight practices that derive from this Jerusalem church. But we're going to frame this first by identifying Four tensions that make our church journeys challenging. And so let's read our text together and then we will walk through this a bit. We're in Acts chapter 2 and we'll start at the end of Peter's sermon in verse 36. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Not exactly a seeker-sensitive ending to a sermon. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a beautiful description of church. Now, I want to identify four tensions that frames this for us. First is the church kingdom tension. As you study church history, at times pastors and theologians have been church-centric rather than Jesus-centric, and that distorts what the life of the church looks like. But we live in a now when the kingdom has become more popular than the church, and so it's easy to find people who will criticize the church. But nobody criticizes the kingdom. It's the church. Now, I grew up here in Black Mountain, and when you start talking about somebody else's wife, those are fighting words. But it's amazing how freely even Christians will slam the bride of Jesus. So just to frame this for us, let me give you a couple of basic definitions. The kingdom. 
the qualitative dimension of God's rule and reign, the expression of God's intertrinitarian agape, righteousness, peace, and joy. That's the kingdom of God. The church, those that Jesus purchased to be kingdom participants. So in very simple terms, the kingdom is God's rule. The church is God's people. He brings his people into his rule. Now what we read here in Acts chapter 2 is what I would call a prevailing church. I mean, this wasn't just a local church. This was a winning local church. I love that idea of prevailing. We just don't want to plant churches in Europe. We want to plant winning churches, prevailing churches, churches getting the job done. A prevailing church is the community of Jesus celebrating the story of Jesus and manifesting the kingdom of Jesus. Now, Jesus talked both about the kingdom and the church. He taught us about the kingdom that it comes, but about the church that he builds it. Jesus brings the kingdom. He said the kingdom of God is here, but Jesus purchased the church in Acts 20, 28, purchased with his blood. Jesus manifests the kingdom. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But Jesus loves the church in Ephesians so much that he gave his life up for it. It doesn't say he loves the kingdom. He loves the church. He brings the kingdom. So there's this kingdom church distinction, but never designed by God to be a point of conflict. And so we live in a day where people love the kingdom, the righteousness, the peace, and the joy that we experience through the rule and reign of Christ in our lives. But when it comes to doing local church well, we struggle because the church is the zone of relational authenticity. It's hard. It takes work. And when it goes wrong, it can be painful. And so some people react and say, well, we're in the kingdom and not church. And that's not a dichotomy that Jesus taught. The second tension is what I would call the universal local tension. No local church is as beautiful as the corporate body of Christ. And so you've probably met some people who claim membership in the universal church but reject participation in the local church because there is no perfect local church. And just like our families, everyone is to some degree idiosyncratic and has some package of dysfunctions. The reason is because it's us. If you find the perfect one, as soon as you show up, it's not anymore. <laughs> we mess it up as soon as we walk in the door. Third is what I would call the personal corporate tension. Especially as American Christians, we tend to think in terms of me rather than we. Now, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that we were all baptized into one body, 
and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So we drink of one spirit personally, but that same Holy Spirit baptizes us into or unites us to make us part of the body of Christ. So our personal identity in Christ is distinct from but cannot be separated from our participation in the corporate body of Christ. Now this is hard for us as American Christians. We believe in the primacy of the individual. We believe in the power of the person to get stuff done. But don't forget Somebody else designed that Ford truck that you drive. Somebody else paved the roads that you ride on. Somebody else ran electricity to the office building where you get work done. We often forget about the we dimension of our lives. And you know the church is like that. We each have a role to play. There's a place for each one of us in this body. And so there is this corporate dimension to what it means to follow Jesus. And that's very much a part of this text that we just read. And the last tension that I'll mention here is what I would call the relevant faithful tension. Now, some churches are contemporary, but losing their gospel distinctiveness they have so adopted to the flavor of this culture that the salt has lost its flavor. Now, this is what missiologists call syncretism. When we are so defined by the culture in which we live and follow Jesus and do church that the gospel gets dissipated and watered down and eventually isn't there. Now, other churches are faithful to the meaning of scripture, but they are culturally irrelevant. They don't speak the language of this culture. Part of what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians 14 is the value of intelligibility. So it doesn't do you any good if I come in and speak five or a thousand words in some language you can't understand. Some churches do that all the time. I'd rather speak five words, he says. And, or, now that's what I call obscurantism. We obscure the gospel by not unpacking it linguistically in a way that can be understood. So some churches struggle to be relevant. I want to give you a big idea. The gospel of Jesus is always relevant. Everywhere, every place, every time. The gospel of Jesus is never irrelevant. But while remaining faithful to scripture, we have to speak a language that people can understand. And so sometimes in this this faithful relevance tension, we go to syncretism or, or obscurantism and the truth of the gospel gets lost. And so I mentioned those four tensions just to say that I, I understand the tricky terrain that we're trying to navigate as we do local church. And yet we have here in Acts 2 these eight practices of powerful churches. These 
are not stylistic, but I would suggest that there are eight things here that, like the gospel, are relevant for every place and every time. When the Holy Spirit was poured out and was active and present in power in a local church, this is what it looked like. These eight practices were here. And so, number one, they preached the gospel. Verse 38 says, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, in this postmodern age in which we live, you know, young people who think they're sometimes not just young, old people too, who want to feel theologically sophisticated will stand back with a kind of look in their eyes and ask deep and profound questions like, Well, what can we really say the gospel is? As if the Bible is in any way vague. It's not. One example where Paul is crystal clear, 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God who became man, died. This actually happened in history. He was really a man who really died. He was buried. This confirms it wasn't just a swoon. He was put in the tomb for our sins. Jesus bore our sins on the cross. This is what we call penal substitutionary atonement. Penal, Jesus bore the penalty for our sins. Substitutionary, Jesus was our substitute, taking our place for our sins. He accomplished the atonement of our sins. They're washed away, as we sing, by the blood of Jesus. Now, those of you who grew up in gospel churches, this is familiar terrain. But you have to understand, this is under attack, even in Christian circles, in the age in which we live. Martin Luther said that if you're not addressing the issues that the enemy is attacking in the day that you live, you're not preaching the gospel. Every generation has to come back and affirm the foundations of the faith and the clear gospel of Jesus. He says that all of this was according to the scriptures. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies about him. He was raised from the dead. The resurrection was real and it was physical. And he appeared to the disciples and others. The second observation I'd make about the gospel is that the gospel is not just for lost people. The gospel is for Christians. The gospel is how we live the Christian life because the gospel gives us our identity. It refreshes us. It's like looking in the mirror every morning and says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you want to know who you are, revisit the gospel. If you're searching for your identity, you will find it in the gospel. Number two, they baptized New believers. 
Verse 41 says, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, the pattern here is real simple. When people repented and believed the gospel, they got baptized. Now, there are five pictures in the New Testament describing the significance of water baptism, death and resurrection, circumcision, being clothed with Christ, passing through the waters of the Red Sea, and passing through the waters of judgment in Noah's ark. Now, the common denominator with all of those is that they point to Jesus. We have died with Christ and been raised with him. We have been circumcised in our hearts by Christ. We have been clothed with Christ. We have been brought out of Egypt and into the promised land through the redemption that is in Christ. Christ is our ark who takes us safely through the waters of judgment. All of this is pointing to Christ and our identity in him that is pictured in this thing called water Baptism, the significance of water baptism is very rich in the New Testament, and you can do those studies, but the point is this. Jesus commanded us to make disciples by baptizing and teaching them. This early church did this. It was part of their package. Number three, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Chapter 4, verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, June unpacked this for us beautifully last night, and I don't need to recapitulate everything that she said, but if you got into a time machine and went back into Jerusalem or Antioch or Corinth about the year 50 AD and went in and asked one of them, are you a spirit-filled church? They would have looked at you quizzically and said, what other kind of church is there? They had never heard of a non-spirit-filled church. In the New Testament, you can't be church without being filled with the New Testament, with the Holy Spirit. That's just part of the deal. Number four. In verse 42, there are four different things that are mentioned in this very beautiful verse. It says they were devoted... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, this little phrase, they devoted themselves to these things. For them, this was normal Christianity, this Greek word devoted, proskartario. It means to adhere to, to be steadfastly attentive to, to continue in, to persevere in. It's like... Imagine in your mind someone training for the Olympics. Um, I mean, these, these people train for hours, for years, to do some of the most obscure things that only have relevance for these two weeks every four years. But for them, that's their whole life. That's a picture of devotion. That's the way that these early Christians interacted with these four things. And the first one says that they were devoted 
to the apostles' teaching. Now, God has given us in the Bible the teachings of the apostles about Jesus and the gospel. This is the God-ordained apostolic teaching that he wants us to have. Now, in Acts chapter 2, this word teaching is used to describe what the apostles were doing, but it's here also in the noun form and refers to the content of their teaching. The Greek word is didache, and it's also translated as doctrine. Now, in our postmodern age, the idea of doctrine has fallen on hard times in two different ways. One is that sometimes people will come up to me and say, Pastor Tom, have you heard the new revelation about... I really don't care how they finish the sentence. They lost me on new revelation. Um, I'm like, you know, I think God has given us... The, the, the stuff he wanted to have. You scared me with the first part of your sentence. Now, the second way that doctrine has fallen on hard times is this. People say, I don't want doctrine. I just want Jesus. Now, what they say, what they're meaning is that they don't want their minds to be cluttered with specific content statements about God. They just want to experience God. That's existentialism. That is not Christianity. There is no experience of God outside of the specific content by which he has revealed himself in his word. He has revealed himself in very specific terms. Read your Bible. I am this, not this. I am the Lord. I am. That I am is not a license for you to fill in the blank for it to be whatever you want it to be. He is who he is. This Jerusalem church was devoted, devoted to apostolic doctrine. A body of content that God gave them that defines this is who they are, this is what they are to believe, and this is how they are supposed to live. Now... You know, I love you know, Paul's letters like Ephesians where before he gets to the what to do stuff, before he gets the, to the imperatives, he starts with the indicatives. He always starts with the this is who you are, therefore live like this. That's Ephesians. It's three chapters of doctrine. This is who you are. And then three chapters of experience. Therefore, based on this, live this Way. So getting the content of doctrine right is so serious that the Apostle John wrote this. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this doctrine, this didache, do not receive him into your house or even give him a greeting. The content of this apostolic doctrine was so serious, it was a non-negotiable. I could go on, but you get the point. If you leave the apostolic doctrine and do church without that doctrine, that is not a church. Number five, they were devoted to fellowship. Now, the Greek word here is koinonia. It means communion, fellowship, participation. And although we often use fellowship as a verb, something that we do here, it's a noun. It's a thing. They were devoted. If you're a 
Lord of the Rings or a Hobbit aficionado, you could call this the fellowship of the king. When God saves us and brings us to himself in Christ, we become partakers of the Holy Spirit. God himself, the third person of the Trinity, comes and lives inside of us and binds us to himself. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, it says this, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So when we're devoted to the koinonia, we're simply devoted to being a member of one another. It's like this hand being devoted to this hand. These two hands of mine usually work together. They don't tend to get into conflicts and competitions because it's all one body. So these Jerusalem Christians were devoted to this fellowship, this mutual participation in the life of God that they shared together. Now, you know, sometimes our approach to Christianity is very individualistic. Just one little statistic some of you Bible scholars will love. There are 59 one another's in the New Testament. 59 times do something with one another. Now, when I read that statistic, it tells me several things. That number one, this is important. Number two, this is hard. If it were easy, he wouldn't have had to say it so many times. And number three, it also means this will be tested. If Christians would just live Ephesians 4.32... The world would be a better place. Ephesians 4.32 says this. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. If we could just live that verse, what a wonderful world it would be. Well, number six. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, this is also mentioned in verse 46, which says they were breaking bread in their homes. They received received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, commentators suggest that this means both eating together, but also specifically refers to the Lord's Supper. Now, on the eating together bit, most Americans don't need to be told to eat. Now, the key thing here is eating together. You know, I remember walking into one pastor's church as visiting him, and he introduced me to his elders. And these were some big men. I mean, they were they were full gospel. And I told him later, I said, Pastor. You have some big elders. He looked at me and said, Brother, eating is one of our core values. <laughs> it is for most Americans. But the point that the New Testament is making is eating together, having people into our homes, hearing each other's stories, sharing in our lives together. This is a beautiful dimension of following Jesus. It's difficult to harbor unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness against someone where you're sitting and sharing a meal together. 
But this idea of devotion means that this didn't just happen randomly. There was some intentionality behind this. Now, some cultures are wired in such a way that fellowship just happens randomly and spontaneously, and you just end up doing this. But in my own family, we have two kinds of people. I mean, my family's so big, I can categorize them. And we've got multiple kinds of people in my family. And so some people in my family prefer fellowship that's spontaneous. But other people in my family prefer fellowship that's planned. The only way that it happens is if it's intentional. My oldest daughter and I are both like that. Um, she, I wanted to have lunch with her before she moved to Japan, and we both got our calendars out, and the first date that worked for both of us was six weeks later. Now, we, we were committed to it, and so we planned it, but we both live that way. We get it done, high capacity, you know, fill up the calendar, let's, let's make things done. Other people prefer spontaneously. Whatever works for you is fine, just do it. Be devoted to this. Now, this phrase also implies the Lord's Supper, and we don't have opportunity in this sermon to fully open up everything that is at stake when we come to the Lord's table, but I would suggest that it is easy for us to underestimate the importance of the Lord's table. Now, in church history, we see perhaps what I would suggest is overreaction to the excesses of Rome. Rome teaches transubstantiation. This becomes the physical body and blood of Jesus. And there's this re-sacrifice that happens in the mass. And the reformers came along and said, well, no to that. And Ulrich Zwingli was so afraid of any kind of superstition that he swung the opposite direction and said, this is nothing more than just remembering what Jesus did. And then Calvin actually taught that, well, no, this, what Rome taught is wrong, but this is going too far. And actually, when we come to this table, Jesus meets us by his spirit. And in the practice of this supper, we are participating with and enjoying the presence of God. And God meets us when these elements are taken in faith and with the teaching of the word. And so we're told in scripture to do this often and for good reason. Like water baptism, this is a gift given to us by God. When we come to the Lord's table, it is Christ himself who has set this supper before us. He uses this meal to convey spiritual strength to us. He says that this is my body that is given for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. God uses this to remind and confirm what our identity is in him. Theologian Louis Burkhoff describes it like this. The Lord's Supper seals to the participant the great love of Christ. It assures the believing participant that he was personally the object of that incomparable love. Now, there's much more that we could say about the Lord's Supper, but it's simply this, that in this, this church in Jerusalem, they came to this table 
often. It was a normal part of following Jesus. Number seven, they were devoted to the prayers. Now, broadly speaking, I categorize Christians in, in, in two kinds of ways, generally. You have prayer Christians and you have word Christians. Now, when you find a prayer and word Christian, you find a powerhouse. But I, in at least in Scotland, in our church, you know, some people read the Bible easily and they're all into the Bible, but when you ask them about their prayer life, it's weak. Other people, they're intercessors, they're praying all the time, and you ask them, well, how much have you been in the Word recently? And so, well, not so much. Now, we need both, but here it says that not only were they devoted to the apostolic doctrine, they were devoted to praying. And, you know, for me, prayer is kind of like going to the gym. You know, you don't just go once and see immediate results. Results come from when going to the gym becomes a pattern, a lifestyle, a habit. And we are, uh, as, as charismatic Christians, hopefully aware of the benefits of the fellowship and participation that we experience when we come to God in prayer. But we read this story of Acts and we see a church that was powerfully devoted to prayer. In Acts chapter 2, they had been praying in this upper room and the Holy Spirit was poured out. In Acts 4, they prayed again. They were filled again with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 13, they prayed and the Holy Spirit spoke to set apart Paul and Barnabas for this mission. And in every one of these encounters, this Holy Spirit dimension was connected with people who were humbling themselves before God expectantly in prayer. There are some dimensions of God that you'll only experience when you come to him in prayer. And last of all, point number eight is generosity. It says this, that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What a beautiful picture that is of of generosity and, and giving and sharing and dislodging ourselves of material possessions to be able to be a blessing. Now, when you read that one, you say, wow, you really know the Holy Spirit is there and at work when people are easily and generously and lovingly parting with their possessions. And so as we stand back and, and look at this, we, we see this, this package of, of these eight things that stand out of this is the way that Jesus taught these disciples to do church. We start with this idea that these guys got it right. They weren't deviating from the Jesus way of doing church. Now, these things are not glamorous. And you might be wondering, well, my church has a rock band and a smoke machine. Is that okay? <laughs> this isn't for or against smoke machines. This is more foundational than that. Whether or not you've got a smoke machine, these eight things need to mark your church. If some of these are missing, something's wrong. Now, 
this is what we want. As we look at this, this is not, this is not complicated, but, and I wouldn't say that this is a formula. It's not like if you just do these eight things that somehow your church is going to become some nirvana place of Ephesians 4.32 just happening all the time. But doing church the way that Jesus taught is a big key of seeing the results that Jesus wants. At the end of this chapter, one of the verses that we read was in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. That's what we all want to see in our churches. And that's what the Lord wants in our churches. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, these were the things that marked this kind of church. Now, smoke machines and pastors with torn jeans are not going to create the presence of God. But... In the spirit of my father telling the story of CBU, I, I will interrupt the sermon to give you one little anecdote. We had one speaker who will remain nameless. This is approximately 1978, and we were over in Anderson Auditorium, and this particular person interrupted her own sermon. Because she saw a cloud of glory. And... Being at the height of the charismatic movement, it was a holy moment. Some people could see it. Others couldn't. Those who couldn't felt like they were second-class kingdom citizens. They were missing out on this manifestation of God. But some people saw the cloud. And it was, it was a holy moment. You, you've been in those kinds of meetings. What my dad didn't have the heart to tell her was that there had been a youth conference right before our meeting, and they had had the smoke machine running. <laughs> Far be it from me. To, to, to mess with your moment. <laughs> Here's the deal. If we do church the way Jesus taught, we can trust the Holy Spirit is going to work in our lives and our churches and that we can become the people that God wants us to be. Amen. 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 Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, you said that you would build your church. You purchased your church with your blood. It is precious to you. You adore your church. You love your church. You wash your church. You cleanse your church. We confess, God, that we often mess up church. It doesn't mean that Church itself is wrong or bad. It simply means that we're flawed, 
sinful humans. God, we cry out for your grace as we each in our local contexts work to follow you in connection with other believers. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us clueless to what your church is about. Right at the very beginning, we see these eight indicators, these eight marks, these eight characteristics of what the church that Jesus planted looks like. Lord, this is what church looked like immediately following the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we confess that not only do we need your power in our lives, we need your power in our churches. So we invite you to come, oh God. We hold our churches before you. We thank you for them, imperfect though they may be. And pray over our churches today, oh God, your kingdom come, your will be done, your purpose be established, oh God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, well, that'll give us something to chew on for a while. Excellent, Tom. Thank you very much. Appreciate your study and preparation to be a blessing to us. Um, let's just stand before the Lord for a moment and just ask him to amplify his word. Lord, we just thank you for the word that we just received, we believe, from you. And that you will cause that to grow in our hearts, our minds, and our spirits as we ponder on these things. And that we will be in a position in you to serve you in a more excellent way as we serve your church. Help us to be good stewards. And we just praise you and thank you. We pray your blessing upon Tom and his family and this ministry. As we commit these things to you, in Jesus' name, and the church said, Amen. Amen. We're going to take about a 10-minute break. Don't go too far. If you last opportunity to take advantage of Brother Carl's table out there with his materials, and Linda Summers' books as well, if you're interested in devotional book. So let's get back in here in about 10 minutes, 15. Stretch. Restrooms. <laughs>